someone posted a notice in a neighborhood, and it reads, Family of four, seeking donations of household goods. And then there was a list of things that were required. Couches, fridge, stove, bunk beds, cutlery, and an assortment of other things. And at the bottom of a notice, at the bottom of a list, were these words in capital. All must be new. (laughs) Now you would say beggars are not choosers. All must be new. We, whether we understand it or not, like new things. I have not yet met a lady who does not like new shoes and new dresses. We like new toys, even if we don't know how to use a jackhammer or something of the nature. We like new tools as men. Some of us, like the Athenians, like new ideas. And most are seeking for new excitement in life. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, tells us that he was the life and soul of parties. In his journal, he wrote about how he would entertain his friends for hours with his wit. But when he went home, he felt like committing suicide. He was looking for something more, something new. And that which we seek, that newness that we seek, Scripture reveals that God has given to us in the new birth, in the new life. And this theme of new birth and new life plays a major role in the writings and the literature of the writer John, the Apostle John. John writes, he tells us at the end of the first epistle of John, in chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Right there, he tells us the purpose of his writing is that they might have assurance of eternal life, that you might know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In 1 John, the apostle is combating secessionist people who had separated themselves from the believing community, the house churches of the day. These, these secessionists, these people who had pulled away from the church, were what we now call Gnostics, coming from knowledge or knowing ones. They meant, it meant the knowing ones. And these Gnostics believed that the relationship with God was based on superior knowledge on secret knowledge that they had received. And John, therefore, sets out to combat this group. They also believed in this polarity between spirit and matter. That is, there is this divide between spiritual and physical, spiritual and material. And because they believed that spiritual was good and the material was evil, they denied that Jesus Christ had come in a material body, that he was physical. And so John writes to clarify who genuine believers are. 
In it, in this epistle, he will give a number of tests by which the believers know that they belong to God and are part of the family of God. He will give, for example, in the first chapter, the test of fellowship with God. In chapter 2, where we're going to begin this discussion on what it means to be born of God, he talks about the test by which we know we belong to God, the test of obedience in chapter 2, verses 3 and 6. In verses 7 and 11, he talks about the test of love. But at the end of chapter 2 and verse 29, John brings a concept which is replete in this epistle. The concept of being born of God or the verb geneo. John writes, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him, that is, born of God. The apostle, prior to this, in the verses prior to this, at least in verses 12 to 14, seeks to encourage the believers, and he encourages them as three groups. I write to you, little children. I write to you, fathers. I write to you young men in verse 13. John is, however, referring to the entirety of the body of Christ. He talks about those who are fathers, perhaps those who are physically older in age, those who are young men, referring to children, perhaps referring to the entirety of the body of Christ. And there was much repetition in verses 12 to 14. But John encourages them by reminding them of three special privileges that they enjoy privilege of forgiveness of sins, the privilege of the knowledge of God, and privilege of victory over the evil one. And then in verses 15 to 17, he turns from encouragement to exhortation where he warns them against falling in love and continuing in love with the world, where he points out to them, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then in verses 18 and following, he refers to these deceivers, these secessionists, who he calls antichrist, these who have left the church because they denied the physical coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John warns them against the deception, so that even though the, the, the people who deny that Christ had come in the flesh had left the church, it appears that they still posed a threat to those who remain. And that is why John takes it upon himself to warn them against these antichrists. He says, little children, it is the last hour and you have heard that the antichrist is coming. And even now many antichrists have come by which we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So John reminds them that the, 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 the Antichrist is at work. And the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in those who are denying the Lord Jesus Christ. But unlike those who are characterized by the spirit of the Antichrist, by the denial of Christ, the living Christ, the physical Christ, John says that these, these who remain in the churches to whom he writes, he says that they have an anointing. And the anointing that they have refers to the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit who lives and abides in them. 
And because they possess the anointing that is the Spirit, John tells them in verse 20 that they know all things. In verse 27, he says that they do not need anyone to teach them. Now, John is not saying that when you become a Christian, all information is given to you, biblical information is given to you, that you have all of Scripture in your head, that you know everything perfectly, and that you do not need pastors and teachers. But when he says that they have the Spirit and that they know all things and do not need anyone to teach them, he's referring to the point in, at issue, the point of the physical coming of Christ. They know, they have been taught, and they know that Christ has come. They know all things that God has given to them related to the coming of Christ. And because of that, they do not need others to teach them, that is to teach them otherwise. And then John tells them in verse 28 that they are to abide in him, that they are to abide in Christ. And when he appears, they may have confidence and not be ashamed of his coming. And in verse 29, we come to then the first use of the term geneo, to be born, to beget. If you know that he is righteous, if you know that God is righteous then, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. John is going to speak about born of God, this concept geneo, ten times in this epistle. And so the question before us is, what then does it mean to be born of God? And what are the signs of those who are born of God? And those are the two questions that we want to grapple with. What does it mean? To be born of God, born of Him, and how does one know that one is born of God? Well, as we think of the concept to be born of God, Geneo, and its frequency, we must first of all conclude that to be born of God describes a supernatural act of recreation that God accomplishes in the sinner. It is first of all to be born of God, to describe that supernatural act of God, a supernatural act of recreation that God accomplishes in the life of a sinner. In, if we are to find what it means to be born of God, we, we need to look at how not only the New Testament uses Geneo, but particularly how the Apostle John uses Geneo. And so you, you go across to his other writing, the Gospel of John. How does he use Geneo in the Gospel of John? And there are two important passages in the Gospel of John where John uses this same verb, Geneo, that I think that will help us to understand the meaning. The first of all is found in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where John says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Who were born, and there you have the verb geneal, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John says, that Christ, the Word, came to his own. He came to his own Jewish nation. You can imagine a man who had gone on a long distant journey and returns after many months. And he comes and he knocks on his door. The light is on, he hears noise inside. He rings the doorbell, but nobody comes. 
Nobody wants him. Nobody opens the door. Nobody admits him in. And Christ has come to his own. He's come and presented himself to his people, but they reject him. And so John says, but as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. John equates receiving Christ with believing in the name of Christ. To receive Christ is to believe in him. And to believe in Christ is to completely entrust oneself to him. To acknowledge his claim as Lord and Savior. And to confess him, one writer says, with gratitude. Now John says that one, to become a child of God, one must receive Christ. And God will give him the right to become the children of God. So that one does not become a child of God. One does not belong to God simply because he belongs to Israel. The right to be called a child of God is given only to those who believe in Christ. Then John goes on in verse 13 to explain how they become children of God. And he does that, first of all, negatively, where he uses three negative expressions, and then positively, where he uses one positive expression to explain how they become children of God. First of all, the first negative expression he uses is not of blood, literally not of bloods. To as many as receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Who he says are born... Not of blood, meaning not of a physical, natural relationship. Born, being born into the family of God is different from being born into a human family. Because being born into a human family, one merely has biological connection. One shares the same gene with mother and father. But to be born in the family of God is not by any physical biological connection not of blood he says secondly not of the will of the flesh that is it is not one is not born into God's family by two people coming together and deciding to procreate not of the will of the flesh the third negative statement not of the will of man and man could mean husband perhaps not of the will of a husband not because a man decide that he wants to have children with his wife. One does not become then a member of God's family on human initiative. It is not within human power, John is indicating, that one becomes a child of God. So how then does one become a member of the family of God? If it is not according to blood, if it is not according to natural descent, not by the will or the desire of human beings, not because of the determination of a man, then how? He says, but of God. That is, one is born of God, Geneo, and so one becomes a part of the family of God. It is a spiritual act. It is to be born again, to be born anew. The next passage that indicates what it means to be born of God is, of course, the passage that is so well known in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. That you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Geneo, there John uses the same verb, Geneo. He will say that in verse 3, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Again, he says the same thing in verse 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, referring to the cleansing, sanctifying work of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then lastly, in verse 8, it says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. For John, to be born of God is equivalent to be born again. It is equivalent to be born of the Spirit. And so when John uses the term, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him in 1 John chapter 2 and 29, it's referring, first of all, it refers to the supernatural recreation that God accomplishes in the life of a sinner. This refers to an inward spiritual change, a radical change, a change from the old life to a new life, or in the language of Paul, from the mind of the flesh to the mind of the spirit. It is a radical change that occurs at the level of the subconscious. It is an imperceptible work, a quickening work, an enlivening work, where God gives spiritual life to those who are dead. We call this regeneration. It's a radical implanting of new life in the soul of a sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins. To be born of God is to be born anew. It is to be recreated. It is to be transformed internally in the mind, in the thinking, in the willing, and in the taste or in the determinations of the heart. It is a spiritual and not a natural work. And so my first argument is that to be born of God refers to that supernatural radical work of God by which we are given life and transformed. But secondly, to be born of God, if it describes a supernatural change in the life of the sinner, to be born of God demonstrates itself in a life of continuing sanctification and victory. And this is where John elaborates on what it is to be born of God here in 1 John. John in 1 John does not tell us about the nature of the new birth. It is a mysterious work. It's a radical work. But what John does is that John says, let me show you, let me give you the evidences of those who are born of God. Let me tell you what a person who is born of God looks like. And he gives us, essentially, a series of evidences. And if you put them together, by and large, they refer to those who are changed ethically. That is, John would argue that the person who is born of God, you're going to see a change in their ethical conduct. In fact, John will give us five, five signs, five marks of those who have been born of God. The first we refer to here in verse 29 of 1 John chapter 2. If you know, and John is not saying that it is possible you do not know. You could read this as since you know. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. John says the first sign that you are changed, that you have known the recreating work of God, that you have known that new life, 
that radical transformation of life is that you will practice righteousness. The Gnostics believed that all they needed was new knowledge, secret knowledge to become a part of God's people. John says that the sign of a person who has been born of God is that the person practices righteousness. And the term righteous comes from the Old Testament Hebrew term Sadiq. At least the Old Testament Hebrew term Sadiq talks of righteousness and describes righteousness as essentially being straight. And so to be righteous, metaphorically, it, it means one is straight with regards to God's law. If God's law is a straight line, then the person who lives righteously will not deviate, but will live straight in accordance with God's law. Dikaios, which is the Greek term from which we, we, we have it here, uh, righteous, means upright. It means just and fear. So that the person then who is righteous is one who lives his life in terms of its direction and choices in a manner that is upright, fear, and just in a manner that is straight with God's will. Righteous. How do I know? How do you know that you have been changed? You're attempting, John says, to practice righteousness. And the word practice is actually to do. It's an ongoing tense that is used here, the present ongoing tense. He does righteousness. He continues to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. Because God by nature is righteous. And when God changes us, he changes us so that we share a common nature. That we are like God who is righteous. So that he who is born of God goes on practicing righteousness. That's the first sign. The second sign of one who is born of God is revealed in chapter 3 and verse 9. John says, secondly, that those who are born of God do not sin. Look at what he says in John 1 John 3 verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, but his seed and perhaps this referred to the word of God or the spirit of God, but his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. When I read that years ago as a young Christian, I was greatly troubled. And the reason why I was greatly troubled is because when you read the King James Version or the New King James, it says he who is born of God cannot sin. And I know that as a professing Christian, I had a lot of things that we're wrong, a lot of sins. So what does that mean? And here's where a little bit of understanding of Greek grammar comes in. Because the Greek grammar would tell you that John uses the present tense. And the present tense is an ongoing tense. And that is why when you translate it, in this sense you understand what John is saying. What John is not saying is that that you can possibly be saved or you can possibly be given new life and then never sin. You know that that cannot be the reason just because contextually, that is within the epistle of 1 John, he makes it clear that Christians sin, even though it's unfortunate, it's a reality. First, I tell you, he goes back to chapter 1 and verse 7 and he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Clearly, Christians do sin. 
If we say we have right now no sin, either we have no sinful actions or no sinful nature, we deceive ourselves. The truth is in us. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I write to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, here's a possibility. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a lawyer in heaven on our side, Jesus Christ the righteous. Later on, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, he says something that is curious. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning, so clearly, a brother refers to somebody who's changed, who's a part of the family of God. But John says, if you see a brother, another Christian, sinning, a sin that does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. So John is saying that if one sees another Christian sinning and doing things that are wrong but, does not, but do not lead to death, that one ought to pray and God would give life. That is that person would enter also into eternal life. But the point I'm trying to say is that John does see the possibility of Christians sinning, a brother sinning, sinning a sin that does not lead to death. And what is a sin that does not lead to death? Well, it refers to the sins that Christ died for and from which God has forgiven them. He talks about a sin that leads to death. He says, there's a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray for that. The sin leading to death in this context, is a sin of denial of Jesus Christ was come as God in flesh. If someone were to deny Christ, to, to apostatize, to turn away from the faith and to deny Christ, then John says, I'm not asking you to pray for that person. So believers are able to, unfortunately, sin. And that's a reality that we know. So when John says that those who are born of God do not sin and cannot sin, we must understand that he means that those who are born of God do not continue to live in sin. They do not continue to practice sin as a habit. Sin Christians will, from time to time, mess up and fail and fall short of the glory of God. But we do not habitually live in sin, enjoying sin, living as though we belong to this world. So John says the second sign of the person who is born of God, not only does he go on practicing righteousness, but he does not go on practicing sin. He gives a third sign of those who are born of God. And that now is found in 1 John 4 verse 7. Those who are born of God... Thirdly, he says, love one another. In 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another. For God, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But notice the expression, everyone who loves is born of God, Ganeo. He's born of God, has been changed, has been spiritually made anew. He's born of God and knows God. John demonstrates that God is love. Not only is God light, but God is love. And God demonstrates his saving love for us by sending his son in the world. So we read in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has loved us. 
And the proof of his love is that he has sent Christ. And Christ was manifested in the flesh. And Christ gave his life on the cross. That's the demonstration of God's love, Christ, the crucified Christ. Those of us who are born of God must not only reflect righteousness that is in God, but must reflect a hatred of sin and a love for God's people because God himself is love. A love that is not merely feeling, but indeed a love that is practical and sacrificial. So we have third, the third sign of those who are born of God. All of these are to be summed up as the ethical character of the believer. John tells us that there's a fourth sign, another sign of those who are born of God, another way by which we can know that we have known a radical transformation in our hearts and lives. And here it is. John says that those who are born of God, they believe in Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loved him, who is begotten of him. What John is saying then, that those who are born of God believes. They believe in Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is, is the Christ, or Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. That is to be born of God, there is a, a change in our hearts. We no longer share the unbelief of the world or the secessionist. They believe not only the content of the gospel, that Christ came, that he witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified. All of this is important to believe. But one entrusts oneself to Christ. He believes in the, in the living Christ. He believes in the, in the incarnate Christ. He believes in the crucified Christ. That's a sign that we genuinely are born of God. There is faith in Christ. We are looking to Christ who physically came into the world and died physically on the cross bearing our sins. We believe. But fifth, there's another sign that John gives us of those who are born of God. And that is found again in 1 John 5, but go down to verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God, Geneo, again, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. John would be clear that to be born of God is to receive a new nature so that we practice righteousness, we hate sin, we love God's people, and we believe in Christ. But we receive a new nature, and this new nature is given to us with power so that we overcome the world. We conquer the world in terms of its seduction and deception, in terms of its false values, its attitudes, and its practices that are opposed to God. And we do so, we overcome the world because we're born of God. We do so not in our strength, but faith by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be born of God, you're following me thus far, describes that supernatural revolution, recreation that takes place in our hearts and lives, where our minds are changed, where our affections are changed and our will is changed so that we serve God. 
but that this being born of God, this new creation, will give evidence of it by how we live, by our character, practicing righteousness, hating and rejecting and resisting sin, loving God's people, believing in Christ, and overcoming the world. There's one more thing that I want to say with regards to being born of God. When I say one more thing, I don't mean just the last thing. I just mean one major thing. And that is, to be born of God describes that radical, inward, supernatural change that God works in us. It manifests itself in our character, a character of holiness and sanctification. But to be born of God, and here it is, guarantees the eternal security of those who belong to God. To be born of God means that you are guaranteed eternal security. I know this because the last two usage of Geneo in 1 John occurs in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. In the previous verses, John is assuring the believers. He says to them, we know... We know that he hears us when we ask. So he says, we know that God answers our prayers. And meaning prayers according to his will in chapter 5 verse 13. We know we are of God, he says in verse 19. He tells us in verse 20, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. But then in verse 18 he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. This is a repetition of what he says earlier in in, in the passage that we read earlier. He says, but he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. So everyone who is born of God will not practice sin. But everyone who is born of God knows protection. He says he who is born of God protects him. And some have referred this to mean uh, he was born of God refers to the Christian, so the Christian protects himself. And in fact, some manuscripts read that he who was born of God protects himself. This is not theologically incorrect. Uh, In James chapter 1 verse 27, James says that a sign of those who are genuine in their, in their Christian confession and genuine religion is that we, we, we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So there's a sense in which believers themselves resist the world and keep themselves unspotted. But I think that it is better to read here, but he who is born of God, referring to Christ the begotten of God, protects him. You see, James, J- James talks about Christians guarding themselves from the world. But John speaks about God the Son protecting those who are born of God. He will not sin. And he will not continue to live in sin and therefore be cut off from God because the Son of God protects him. John tells us that in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. That Christ protects the believer. In his high priestly prayer, our Lord says, I have kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I have kept. And not one is lost except the son of perdition. The verb that John uses here in 1 John 5, 5 verse 18 is the verb terio, to guard. It is the same verb that is used of soldiers who were under the cross looking at Jesus Christ guarding him. Lest perhaps someone would come and remove him. 
It's a strong verb. And John says, the one who is born of God does not go on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, that the evil one does not touch him. He's guarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. John says he's so guarded that the evil one does not touch him. Now, John is not saying that those who are born of God are so protected that Satan cannot cause havoc or cause difficulties in the life of the Christian. That's not true. We know that we face an enemy who is like a raging lion who seeks to attack us and to devour us. So how does, how does John then say that he was born of God, the, the, the one who was born of God protects him, that the, that the evil one does not touch him? Well, the touch, the verb touch here does not refer to a super, superficial contact with us. It's the same verb that is used of Mary. When Jesus rose from the dead, we're told that Mary was clinging to Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, do not cling to me. That's the term as uses touch. And what is being said here is that the one who's born of God is protected by the Son of God so that Satan will not cling to him. He will not latch on to him and wrest him away and take him away so that he's eventually lost. So the one who's born of God is protected by the almighty Christ that Satan will not have the last laugh. What does it mean to be born of God? It means to be supernaturally and radically changed. And the evidence of that change is a change in life, a change in lifestyle. And those who have known this radical supernatural change being born of God are those who are protected by Jesus Christ himself. But it leads me in terms of a few implications to remind you that, that it is operative that you and I are born of God, born again. I read this past week of a British poet and playwright called Lem Sisse. Lem Sisse, who recently won the election to become the Chancellor of University of Manchester in England. He beat another great politician in England to become the Chancellor of the University of Manchester. But it also tells us a story that Sisse is also to receive an honorary doctorate from the same University of Manchester sometime in October this year. The problem with that is this. One of the functions of a chancellor of a university is to award degrees. Sisse has now become the chancellor. The chancellor's job is to award degrees. So who's going to award the honorary doctorate to Sisse? It appears, as ludicrous as it seems, that Sisse is going to award himself an honorary doctorate. You see, we can give ourselves any kind of gift. We can give ourselves a trip to the most exotic place and have a fantastic vacation. We can give ourselves all kinds of presents. We can even give ourselves a doctorate if we want to. You just make one online and sign it and you give us your own doctorate. You can do that. But what we cannot do is to give ourselves new life. What we cannot do is to cause ourselves to be born again. This is a miracle that only God can create. It is only God who can change the heart of men and women and make us new. But the good news is that this new birth, this new life, this regeneration is available in Christ. 
For God is the one who changes men. It is he who takes out the heart of stone and places in us a heart of flesh. It is he who gives us a new heart, reformatted and programmed for righteousness in the language of our dear Dr. Adams. A new heart programmed with righteousness. It is God who does this. It is God who does the miracle of making new life and giving new life. You read in the, in the chapter there in Ezekiel 37, the Spirit of God speaks to Ezekiel or shows him this valley of dry bones. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel is clever. He doesn't want to put a foot wrong. He says to the Spirit of God, you know. So the Lord tells him to prophesy. And as he prophesies, this valley of corpses, dry bones, these bones begin to rustle. And then they join themselves to one another. Sinews cover them, flesh cover them, skin cover them. And then he prophesies to the four winds and they fill these dry bones and they lived. And you and I in sin are those dry bones. We cannot give life to ourselves, but the Spirit of God can quicken. And if you are a believer, you have been quickened. You have been given new life. You have been born of God supernaturally. You can't give yourself new life. That's not your job. But you may say, but I, I don't have this new life. How do I receive it if it comes from God? What scripture tells you, whether you think it's coherent or not, is that you must receive Jesus Christ. Because it is as you receive Christ that you're going to know that supernatural work of God in the heart. It is as you believe in Jesus Christ that, that, that your belief in Christ will be proved positive that God has given you a new heart. You must receive Christ. You must believe in his name. You must drop your own works and trust in what Christ has done. You must take Christ. You must look simply and directly to Christ. You must embrace Christ. You must receive him and you must receive his finished work. But he died on the cross and paid for all our sins. And if you have been born again, you must exhibit the character of God. A little boy was very fascinated with his father and his shaving. He would go in the bathroom in the morning and see his dad lather on his face, shaving cream and how he would shave. And he, the boy wanted to do that, dying to get up big so he could have shaving cream and shave. And one day when his father wasn't there, he went into his father's parents' bathroom and he took the shaving cream and he daubed it all over his face, even over his nose. And then he started playing with it. He drew all kinds of design on the floor. Made a tremendous mess. And he goes out. His dad looks at him and says, Son, have you been playing with my shaving cream? The boy looks at his father with grapefruit-sized eyes and says, No. But you see, there are clues that he has left. His face and nose covered in shaving cream. It's on his hands, it's on his shorts. There's telltale signs all over that he has been in shaving cream. And when you become 
a believer when you have been changed by God even though you do not know precisely how he does it there is going to be telltale signs there are going to be clues that you leave behind that you have been changed and one of the clues is you're going to begin to practice righteousness you're going to want to live straight you're going to want to know what God wants of you and you're going to want to seek to please him. You're going to want to turn away from sin. All of the attitudes and the words and the deeds that you know are displeasing, you're going to hate them. And when you do fall down, you're going to stand up again in the strength of the Lord and you're going to resist them and you're going to res renounce them and you're going to press on after righteousness. You're going to seek to love God's people. This is no longer about you and you alone. You're going to live by loving God's people, by doing good to them, by caring for them in meaningful and tangible ways. And you're going to believe in Jesus Christ. And you're going to begin to experience victory over the world because you now have a new power, the Spirit of God dwelling and residing in your heart and life. Amen. My, my dear friends, if you've been born of God, demonstrated in how you live demonstrated in a world that is dark and sinful where men and women are parading in their sinfulness you need to parade the image of Christ in this sinful world because you're born of God and if you are born of God give thanks and praise to him rest in assurance that even though Satan would seek to drag you back into the old life, even though he will continually tempt you to a life of lust and selfishness and greed and lovelessness, know that you have renounced that life and know that Christ is God in you and he will keep you saved until the end. He will guard you by the power of God and will keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Know that if you are born of God, you are safe in the arms of Jesus. May God help you to run with this news that you are born of God. May you thank him, exhibit the character of those who are born, and relax and rest in the arms of Jesus who secures you forever and ever. Amen.